This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on orders over $65. This is a limited time offer, so shop AmosAdvantage.com today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We have a really interesting episode for you today, more or less in honor of 9-11. We're going to be talking about different numismatic and exonumic commemorations of the event. With the 18th anniversary just behind us, we thought that it would be worth talking about. In our interview with Beth Deicher, former editor of Coin World who now does anti-counterfeiting work, also mentions the tragedy. So we thought that it would be an interesting theme for today's episode. Absolutely. And also, as we delve back into history, we're looking at the first gold $10 coins of the U.S. Mint. We have a little trivia from Canada. And as usual, we will explore a numismatic term to further elucidate your education. And remember, if you enjoy this episode and you've enjoyed any episodes in the past, remember not only to keep on listening every week because we really appreciate it, but also to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcast through. So, With that, we're going to move into talking about September the 11th, 2001, obviously a horrible terrorist attack. A lot of people, understandably, don't really think of coins in connection with this. But in the years since the tragedy, a number of coins that were actually in vaults underneath the World Trade Center have been recovered and certified by third-party certification services, NGC, PCGS, etc., with, you know, a little designation on the third-party slab explaining that these are coins that were recovered from Ground Zero, which makes for a very powerful and I think for some people maybe a little bit unsettling commemoration and collectible related to the event. Because it's important to note that the the World Trade Center being a one of the most significant financial centers in the entire world, there were bullion coins stored in vaults underneath the building, and when the towers came down, the vaults were left intact, and the coins were taken out after first responders and other crews got people out and then cleared the debris and everything, the vaults were still accessible, meaning that gold and silver coins that were in the vaults were recovered. Yeah, these were not only gold American eagles and silver American eagles, there were other bullion coins. I believe, though, that all of them were slabbed by PCGS in a a deal at the time. Now, we could be wrong, but I believe that's the case. It's interesting to note, though, and, and that's something that senior editor Paul Jokes will tell you if you listen long enough, that the 1933 Double Eagle was housed in vaults under the World Trade Center until not too long before the attack, just several months before the attack. So if that had not been spirited out, who knows whether it would have survived the the sole piece that's legal to own and whose ownership is in question. It's interesting, though, to talk about those silver and gold coins that have been slabbed because we have seen a few years after September 11, 2001, National Collectors Mint made a lot of waves, a lot of news with a commemorative coin from the Cook Islands. These were designed by Daniel Carr, a uh, designer of a couple U.S coins, the quarters, and and Dan has since gone on to issue all sorts of numismatic commemorative pieces. 
This was quite the controversy. The then Attorney General, New York Attorney General uh, Elliot Spitzer, attacked the company, noting that these pieces were silver-plated, not pure silver, that they were taking advantage of the tragedy. The The company was forced to accept returns and, and offer refunds. There were so many of those pieces sold, though, through uh, television advertising, website advertising. It's not uncommon to find one of those pieces now. That's the Cook Islands piece from a couple, like a year or two after September 11th. And then in 2011... The uh, U.S. Mint, for the 10th anniversary of the attacks, issued two different medals, a, a silver medal, a silver national medal that features a woman, an allegorical female portrayal of liberty holding up a lamp with Always Remember, 2001 to 2011. And they also issued a companion series of bronze medals to honor uh, the Fallen Heroes bronze medal series, honoring the victims of the tragedy and the people who responded to the tragedy, the heroes who responded to the tragedy, and in the case of Flight 93, averted the tragedy. In New York, Virginia, and Pennsylvania, where, of course, the New York attack where the planes hit the Trade Center, in Virginia, when the plane hit the Pentagon, and the the field in Pennsylvania where Flight 93 was brought down by, by people on the flight who rushed the cockpit and overpowered the attackers and crashed the plane into Flight 93, costing themselves their own lives, but preventing the plane from attacking. I believe it was headed for the White House, wasn't it? It's possible it was headed for the White but House it was or, for for, or for the halls of Congress. So. Right. So so they, they brought it down before it could potentially attack another target. And so the U.S. Mint produced three bronze medals in two different sizes. They produced a 1.5 and 3-inch versions of both of these medals. The New York one, of course, portraying the towers. Seen from the ground, it's actually kind of an interesting angle. The Virginia one portrays the side of the Pentagon, the wing of the Pentagon where the plane struck. The Flight 93 medal features the hemlock groves that sit behind the memorial boulder of the Flight 93 memorial. So there's a stand of trees behind the main memorial at the field that people can go to visit. And this medal portrays that hemlock grove. The Fallen Heroes medals were actually launched in 2014 uh, when gold versions were presented to the National September 11th Memorial and Museum in New York for permanent display. The medals were authorized in 2011. However, uh, the design process took a while, and the bronze versions are duplicate the designs that were struck in gold that were presented to the National September 11th Memorial and Museum in New York. Now, most recently, there has been... So, you know, the 2011 National Medal, you had the bronze medals in 2014. Most recently, kind of dovetailing with the third-party certified coins recovered from the 9-11 vault, from, from the vault underneath the World Trade Center... Now, well, National Collectors Mint is at it again, and what they have done is they've taken Silver Eagles, American Silver Eagle Boolean coins, and they have taken some of the American Silver Eagle Boolean coins and other Boolean coins, probably, from the vaults. I, we know silver for sure. Yeah, we, we know that they took American Silver Eagles, but there might have been other countries' silver Boolean coins that were— And there might even be gold American Eagles, but, but what they're doing is taking those coins that were recovered mm -hmm. and slabbed coins. as such— and they're melting those down and coating other silver American eagles with and the then, recovered silver. And then selling them as sort of a 9-11 silver plated or you know, plated with 9-11 silver in these holders, which I'll confess I really don't like. 
I, I don't think that that's very respectful for the artifacts that were recovered after the tragedy. I don't think that's very respectful of the people who died both on 9-11 and, first, and all the first responders and other people who lost their lives as a result of illness or some other... And there's first responders who are dying now, yeah. even, well, due to their, their yeah, illnesses. I mean, you know, they... There have been some pretty highly publicized cases where you know John Stewart and all these first responders showed up to basically say, please fund these medical programs. Yeah. The 9-11 first responders, the Zadroga Act, to you know, re-up the 9-11 first responders fund. There's something, to me, a little bit callous about... It's not enough to sell an American silver eagle that was recovered out of it. That's that to me is is it's somber, but it's understandable. It's it's a piece of history. You can understand it as a product of that day. But then to melt that down just so you can make more money by producing more of these individual things that you can then sell at an upcharge. That that strikes me as as disrespectful. And I would say I would bet that some listeners think that even what they did before crossed the line by yes. by encapsulating these pieces that were recovered that, I, from the vault I, that very well could have crossed the line. I'm not sure. And and I'm not sure either. I I I think back to things like the Great Chicago Fire, where there are relic metals that were made from pieces that were melted in the fire. the The main difference is besides the timing, you know. That was 120, 30 years ago. The catastrophic loss of life on 9-11 separates that from the Great Chicago Fire. And I think there will always be entrepreneurial folks who look at a moment in history and say, we can commemorate it, we can make some money from this. But I think certainly the newest iteration is just a bit too far. It's um, It's cynical. It's... Uh, well, it, it's it's ridiculous, is, mm-hmm. is what it is. And uh, you know, if if you want to commemorate the moment, you can find the silver medal. I have bought a couple at uh, you know twenty five to thirty dollars. You might even be uh, lucky and find it closer to spot because while they were issued at something like fifty five dollars a piece, the aftermarket price for them is is more reflective of the spot price. Get that. That was a, a U.S. Mint product. It's related to the act of Congress that is commemorating and celebrating or, the heroes, the fallen heroes medals. Or you can find yeah, you can find the bronze ones were issued. I mean, the one and a half inch bronze uh, Heroes and 9-11 things were issued for $7. And, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the markup you're going to pay is not going to be significant above that. And more Well, or, yeah, you can buy them from the Mint today, I believe. So six. I don't know if they, yeah, yeah, they yeah. still stock them. Six ninety five each for the, uh, for the one and a half, so $39.95 for the three inch. What would really make a compelling visual is to have the Virginia one in a one and a half inch and the Pentagon, I'm, I'm sorry, the uh, Pennsylvania one in a one and a half inch, and in the middle have the three inch New York one. That mm, I think that would be a, a really moving and, and appropriate memorial. Or just or get them, you know, get all three in one and a half inch and all three in three inch, and then make you can make whatever combination. Well, yes, you I, want. I just I like the idea of that, you know, because so much of the loss of life was centered in New York. That is right. sort of the no, focus. No, no, agree, and, agree. And that's that's a, the focal point of the commemoration. But but you yeah, have these idea. other two flanking them. Yeah, I like that. And and so in, in any event, and uh, you could even I mean, if you again, it's it's towing the line. But if you wanted to acquire one of the one of the certified bullion coins out of the vaults. That to me is not as inappropriate or as sort of cynical as the 
you know, the silver plated yeah, silver, the silver plated <laughs> silver eagles. So you could even get one of those Boolean coins and include that in your presentation. I mean, that sure. that would be, I think, still within the bounds of both good taste and sort of decorum and respectfulness for the victims of that tragedy. I I like though, like I say, the balance of three objects. No, no, I, no, I, I get know, it. No, no, no. The, the three sort of is a, a magic number, right? You yeah. Know, in in art, no, it's like sort of your own medallic triptych. You know, yeah. it's, it's uh... no, no, no. It's 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 a that would be a cool idea. So I guess you know if if we're gonna impart a message or our own editorial opinion to our listeners, I think we'd say. Silver-plated silver eagles are kind of a silly product to begin with and that they're melting down these pieces of our national history and of and of a huge event in our recent history just to make a buck. I I I can't endorse that. So, um go out and, you know, get the bronze medals, get the silver medal. Yeah. Go go do that. And and another possibility is it proved to be optimal timing but obviously unplanned. The Royal Canadian Mint in 2001 in uh, the sp- late spring, early summer released silver and copper nickel versions of an American flag medal. I, I don't exactly recall the-, the main reason for the program other than the Mint thought they could sell them and, and make some money. There may have been an anniversary involved, but uh, those became very popular after 9-11 because they have the American flag on them, The certainly the silver one. I believe some folks uh, took them and added color to them, colorized the American flag. So those are out there as well. And I say that as the perfect segue to our trivia question, which comes from Canada and the Royal Canadian Mint. The question for the listeners, Chris can play along here in the (laughs) studio. As always. When did the Mint in Canada get its start? Now, that's Maybe not too fine of a question or wording. So I will say more properly, when did the Royal Canadian Mint's Ottawa branch or facility open? Because that's what we're talking about. Because they have a Winnipeg facility. That's more modern. That does the circulating stuff. Ottawa does the collector stuff and the bullion. But the, the Royal Canadian Mint was the first at Ottawa was the first native Canadian mint. Um, yeah, when the Ottawa Mint was established, fill in the blank in what year, Yeah, there was no Canadian mint. Native Canadian native, coinage. Yeah, all the, the, the Canadian coins were being produced at the Mother Mint, Royal Mint in England, maybe Birmingham. Uh, there are some, some H mint marks on the uh, Canadian sense in certain eras. Um, the idea is what year did that Ottawa Mint open? That's your trivia question. We will come back to it in just a bit. Now, Chris is going to give you some numismatic relief. Mm. Ha ha. Yep. So, for our numismatic term of the week, we're going to be talking about the term relief specifically, and then the term relief split into two subterms, high relief and Bas relief. Some people think it's the S is silent, that it's Ba relief, but I looked it up, and according to both... According to all the dictionary websites, you know, dictionary.com, the online Merriam-Webster dictionary, it said in the little pronunciation guide, Boz Relief. So if someone, if some listener out there knows better, we're going to say Boz Relief because that's what I heard. So, yeah, and, and I I didn't know that was the case, so this was a chance for me to yeah. learn something. Well, or and it, it may or, you know, if someone out there happens to be an expert on this, let us know if you pronounce yes or not. So the term relief denotes basically... The amount of distance, so to speak, or the relative 
height, would you say? Yeah, high, height, but it's such a tiny amount of of of, of difference that you know, it, that's the right word. Height, height or depth. It's or... tricky. It, it denotes essentially the difference between the highest point and the lowest point on a coin design. So in previous episodes, we've talked about the term field and the term device, right? The device is something that is struck into the coin. In the case of, take an, an Indian head scent, for example, the Native American bust on the obverse, that's a device. And, you know, and then that's the big device. And then, you know, each uh, feather in the war bonnet is kind of a little device on its own. But, you know, anything, any raised portion of the coin out of the field is a device. Now, the field of the coin, the part where there's no design struck into it, represents... It's flat. Yeah, it's flat. That represents the low point. So if you want to think of it like a topographical map, right... That's almost like sea level, you know, that's, that's the bottom of the coin. That's as, that's as low as you can go as the field. Now, when the device is struck into the coin, obviously the field is struck around the device. So the field is lowered so that the design that's struck into the coin is raised so that you can see it. It's not just, it's not two dimensional. It's not just carved into the surface of a coin. You know, it's not just a two dimensional sort of like writing or, or almost like a, like a painting where it's essentially one dimension or two dimensional. So now relief denotes the difference between the height, so to speak, or the the distance, minute a, dif- a distance though it is, that the points on the device, the highest point and all the points on the device are raised above the the field. So now the term high relief and Bas relief are helpful in terms of categorizing coins and understanding different amounts of relief on a coin. So if you have a coin that's said to be Bas relief, that means that the distance between the highest point on the coin and the field is relatively small. The design, then, overall, is flatter. Now, most coins that are struck, especially for circulation, are generally Bas relief because it takes a lot more energy in the striking process and it takes it's a much more involved striking process to create a high-relief coin because you need to hit it, you need to hit the, the planchet. We talked about planchet in a previous episode describing minting terms. The... Hammer die needs to hit the anvil die, to use two more terms, with a lot more force, and you often need, for a high-relief coin, a lot more metal. Now, a high-relief coin denotes a coin where the design is much higher compared to a Bas-relief coin, is much deeper, so to speak. The field is deeper relative to the highest points of the device. So, that requires a lot more energy to hit it, to hit the, the planchet, and you also need a lot more, you need a little bit more metal in the coin, because you know, coin planches aren't that thick. And so the amount of relief increases if you increase the amount of metal in the coin. For high relief coins, special dyes need to be produced, uh, not only uh, deeper dyes to create the depth necessary to create the, the difference between the field and the and the top of the devices, but uh, that's a lot stronger so that the any additional force, or if you need to strike it multiple times, that the die will remain durable and be able to you know, put the high-relief design onto the coin. Now, the United States has actually had the number of high-relief coins minted in its history. The 1907 St. Gons Gold Double Eagle is a high-relief coin. If you compare the 1907 high-relief Gold Double Eagle to other coins minted in the same series, you'll see that the design looks a lot deeper and and a little bit sharper on a high-relief coin because it's further above the field. There can be more detail, and the field is going to be a little bit lower. So the, the 1921 peace dollar is also a high-relief coin. It was struck, the fields are much lower, the design is much higher, but for a circulating coin, the Mint found that that was impractical. They found that for the amount of energy they needed to expend to make it, and they found that the way that it functioned in circulation was 
not as effective as a Bas Relief design. So in 1922, they changed it and it became a Bas Relief coin instead of a High Relief coin. So visually, the coins are pretty distinct, though it would probably take a relatively experienced collector with a good eye for it to really, you know, to capture High Relief coins. But most High Relief coins that are issued whatever minting institution creates them makes clear that they are high relief coins. So in some sense, you almost don't need to be able to tell. And and in modern times, you know, in 2009, the U.S. Mint issued an ultra high relief gold uh, coin that recalls yep. that classic design. Yeah, the 1907 one, yeah. Many world mints have issued ultra high relief coins, just some amazing depth to them. The thing is, you know, when you're striking circulation coins, you're doing 700 to 1,000 a, a minute. You don't have time to make them high relief and exactly and that's it's a much what, more involved process that's why you know you look at our, our circulating coins our pocket change very flat designs very uninspiring but you can look at some classic designs and see that my gosh those, those designs really evoke beauty that is lacking from well, and really today's pop. coins there's, yes. there's, there's a richness and a depth to yes. these high release designs so if you ever get a chance find yourself a 1921 peace dollar a 1907 high relief gold double eagle and you'll you'll get a sense or you know more contemporary uh, high relief examples yeah the world stuff yeah and you'll you'll see what uh, what is that we're talking about now we've been talking a lot about recent history but Jeff what was going on this week in numismatic history. So, this coin is not high relief, sorry, but we're going to talk about what happened on September 17th, 1795. That was the first delivery of the gold $10 eagles. That is the capped bus, right-facing, small eagle design. Those were delivered this week more than 214 years ago, or exactly 214 years ago, right? September 17th, 1795. Those coins are not cheap. Even in uh, fine 12, you're talking, you know, twenty to $40,000. There's only some, some 5,583 of them were made. So a very rare coin, but... It's notable that they were delivered this week in history, 1795. All right. Now, we're talking about, about mint deliveries. We're talking about minting process, mint history. What about the Ottawa Mint do we need to learn? What is, what is this burning trivia answer? So I asked you a little while ago, what year did the Ottawa Mint open? I think I'm ready to try to give you an answer. For, uh, for our mint history question from earlier in the and episode. And it, it's not as back in time as the 1795 This Week in History. Not so quite. That, that's your first hint. <laughs> so it's after it's post. So the, the question we're dealing with is when was the, the first sort of native Canadian mint? The, well, the no, Ottawa the, Mint. Well, not, not First Nations people, to be clear. Native in the sense of uh, an institution originating in Canada. So the Ottawa Mint, what year did it open? Oh, I know the answer. You don't need to ask me. Oh, I know. No, I know. I'm recapping the question. So we now know, thanks to your little hint, that it was 17 – that it's after 1795, which I think most of us could have probably intuited because Canada (laughs) – I mean, as we learned a few episodes ago, Canada – you know, not all of Canada was even a colony until the 1850s. So I'm going to assume that 1795 is a little earlier. Confederation in 1867. Yep. You have uh, Newfoundland didn't join, though, until 1949. So it's somewhere in there. How about that? (laughs) Somewhere between 1871 and 1949. All right. I am going to guess 
Oh, dang. You know, I'm going to guess 1900. Am I right? No. You are close, though. 1908 was the year that Ottawa opened. And in 1998, for the 90th anniversary, the RCM issued some commemorative coins for the centennial they issued. I was going to say, why didn't they just wait until the centennial? Well, because it was a chance to sell commemorative coins. That's, I mean, this is Canada we're talking about. Uh, uh, I guess that's true. Many, many folks note the um, the enormous output from the Royal Canadian Mint. It was nothing in 1998 like it is today, or even in 2008, it wasn't anything compared to the volume of today. But in 2008, they celebrated the centennial. There are also some great coin designs that were revived in modern strikings. So that well, is your trivia question well, for this week. Dear Coin World Canada. listeners, if you want to find a, a Canadian coin, it was the first, you know, the first year that coins were minted, officially minted by the Canadian government. Obviously, local trade tokens and things existed that were minted in Canada before that. But if you want sort of the original Canadian coins, go out and find some that are dated 1908. Absolutely. Amos Advantage is a proud sponsor of the Coin World podcast. Whether you're looking for numismatic books, storage, or cleaning supplies, Amos Advantage has you covered. Visit amosadvantage.com today. And now, back to the show. You'll want to make sure that the coins you get from Canada from 1908 are legitimate. I don't know that there's many counterfeits out there of them. However, there are many counterfeits of all coins, and that's the reason we spoke with Beth Deicher this week. She is recently stepped down from the Anti-Counterfeiting Task Force, the Anti-Counterfeiting Educational Foundation. We got a great look into the fight against counterfeits, how important that is for the hobby, the strength of the hobby, the future of the hobby. We had a great time speaking with Beth, learning. Hope you enjoy it. Here's our interview. Welcome back. We are joined with Beth Deicher, who served for 27 years as Coin World editor. She's also served more than two years and eight months in the role for the Anti-Counterfeiting Educational Foundation as the Director of Anti-Counterfeiting. We are privileged to have you join us today and share your thoughts with the listeners to the Coin World podcast. Great to be here. So let's jump in and talk about your role in anti-counterfeiting. Today, counterfeits, they've always been around in the hobby, but it seems the last 10, 20 years, they've been particularly problematic. Talk about how you got involved in the anti-counterfeiting threat, what drew you into that? Well, actually, it began for me here at CoinWorld. Uh, around 2007, early 2008, we noticed a pickup. Subscribers and dealers were talking about counterfeits, and we did an extensive research and published a series. And uh, what we did was to locate some of the counterfeiters in China, and we actually arranged interviews with them. At that time, it was really a cottage industry. The guy who claimed to be the largest of the counterfeiters by volume selling into the United States said he had managed to buy uh, what was scrap metal. It was actually an old press that had been sold to China in the 1920s. It came out of the Denver Mint. It was uh, in use in the 1870s in the Denver Mint and scrapped and sold to China and used for a few years and then put in a warehouse and rediscovered 
in around 2005, and he had started his business, if you will, and was using the Internet to try to establish customers in the United States. The problem was, of course, they were not observing the Hobby Protection Act and properly marking the coins. And his response to us was, first of all, his government licensed him to make replicas of anything. They do not recognize any international copyright or trademarks. But he also said, my customers don't want copy on them, so I don't stamp them. So at that time, the counterfeits were really identifiable. Most any seasoned numismatist or certainly dealers could pick out the counterfeits very easily. We don't know exactly when the shift came, but we do realize of the research that we've done over the last three to four years is that there was a shift in China, and we don't know if big guys came in and swallowed up the little guys or the little guys grew. But today, it's a very sophisticated operation where you have major companies that counterfeit other products, but they're using the same modern presses and digital technology as the modern world mints. They use the same kind of technology and presses that the U.S. Mint has. So they're very sophisticated in their large operations, and they use the Internet very, very well. That presented a whole different set of problems around 2015, 2016, when it became very obvious that the counterfeits were really, really good and they were coming in in enormous numbers. And so the leaders within the, the hobby decided that they had to come together and figure out a strategy to deal with this. And I was asked to attend a meeting at the Central States show in April of 2016 and they decided there was a group of about a dozen people that met there that there had to be a wider buy-in and effort. So they called a hobby summit on the Monday before the a and show began on Tuesday in August of 2016. And from that, they determined that the major organizations, the American Numismatic Associations, the Professional Numismatist Guild, and the Industry Council for Tangible Assets, the leadership of those three organizations came together and said, we want to put together a task force. And they asked me to advise them at that point. And we worked through the fall, developing a mission statement, a vision, uh, objectives of what this should be. From the outset, it was always volunteers. And uh, they also determined that it had to exist on donations. So working under those parameters, ICTA stepped forward and said, we will manage this and we will bring aboard a staff person. And ICTA actually recruited me, came back to me and said, would you consider <laughs> coming out of retirement and getting this off the ground for us? And so I said, yes, I think I can do this. And, and we started, and it was launched on January 6, 2017, officially the, the Anti-Counterfeiting Task Force. And one of the first things that 
uh, I knew had to happen was we, we needed to establish contacts within federal law enforcement because federal law enforcement is responsible for the major counterfeiting laws in this country. It's under tight, Title 18 of the Criminal Code. And the Secret Service has that responsibility. And it's a little ironic that we're taping this on September 11th, the 18th anniversary. What we learned in those very first meetings in Washington was that September 11th had had a major impact on the investigations in the whole policing of counterfeits in the United States, especially coins. At that point, there were really three members of the Secret Service that had, over the years, become experts in counterfeit detection. They had even attended summer seminar at the ANA and had gained experience. Shortly after September 11th, the Secret Service was transferred from the U.S. Treasury Department to the new Homeland Security Division. It's really a separate cabinet-level department. And those experts in counterfeit detection of coins, two retired and one was transferred to a completely different entity. So they had no, no expertise there. And with the emphasis on international terrorism and also the problems that they had with the super notes coming out of North Korea and other places, the emphasis was on paper money counterfeiting of paper money. So we realized right away that there was a void in knowledge. And who better than the people within the numismatic community to help law enforcement? And they very forthrightly said, we don't have experts in our uh, investigative divisions, and yes, we need your help. So that was one of the first things we looked at was developing programs for education and training of law enforcement on the federal, but we also widened that to state and local levels. So that has been one of our major efforts, and we just launched a special portal for law enforcement that offers basic training, and we've also done seminars and have additional plans for training coming up so that hopefully if people call Secret Service, they will not get the answer that we were getting in 2016 was, we don't do coins, we only do paper money. So um, so there's really 15 years there where there's just this empty, this blind spot. There's just, yes. you know, in a football analogy, you got this field is wide open on one side because these folks are elsewhere working on other <laughs> other things. So is, is that is the gap filled now with these resources? I think it is beginning to be filled because we not only have Secret Service agents that work on these cases, but there is a special division within Homeland Security called HSI, Homeland Security Investigations, that also take on the counterfeiting cases. And Uh, Another major component on the federal level is Customs and Border Protection. And there again, we learned on all three of these agencies, they had essentially looked at the face value of of coins as being determined as whether or not it was worth their time. 
And the other factor was federal prosecutors. And they would say to these investigators, we have so many cases. Don't bring us any cases that don't rise to at least a $10,000 threshold. Well, they would look at, for instance, the one-ounce bullion coin, the American Eagle, is denominated $50. For gold. For gold. And they would see this coming through Customs and Border Protection, and they would say, oh, $50 coin. It's not worth bothering. And you only need six to eight of those, depending on what time, you know, right. well, and, <laughs> to, and I, to meet that $10,000. One of my, my most vivid memories is sitting with members of the Secret Service, Custom Border Protection, and HSI, and I had a counterfeit American Eagle one-ounce bullion coin, and I had a real one. And I said, now, this coin at that time, gold was... $1,300 an ounce. And I said, why can't you look at this coin? Well, it's $50. I said, no, it is worth $1,300 plus, and it's made by the U.S. Mint. And they were astounded. And they said, well, we, we can't just look at one coin. I said, if you have 10 coins coming through there, it's well worth your time. And they got it right away. But they didn't know that. They did not know. The first thing they asked us to do was a short white paper on bullion coins, the value, and the difference between face value, bullion value, and collector value. That was circulated throughout the, all of the field offices and agents inspecting packages coming in that had coins. Right away, we began getting cases of counterfeit coins coming into the field offices that had to be inspected. So that was the basis of where we started. Has there been a, um, a shift from gold coins to silver coins to keep under that threshold? Is there any, have market forces reacted, so to speak? Actually, they have, and it's been interesting. Gold was probably coming in at a greater volume two years ago. And uh, what we're seeing today is many of the uh, American Eagle silver bullion coins coming in. I, I saw one on Amazon yesterday. It's a 2019, and it's a very good counterfeit. And people don't realize the difference, and they're seeing them in, on Amazon. They're seeing them on eBay. They don't even have to go to, like, Alibaba, the, the large Chinese-owned internet place for purchasing. You know that the American coins are being faked, and that's under review. What about Canadian coins, the Maple Leafs? What about these others? And does that bother the law enforcement as well, since they're not American coins? Federal law provides that you cannot import foreign coins that are counterfeit as well as, as American coins. So it makes no difference. If you try to import a counterfeit Canadian French, British, doesn't matter. If it is counterfeit, U.S. law covers it. And and that's been part of the education process, yes. though, so that these field offices, the agents, know what they're dealing with. Absolutely. It seems from your comments so far that the lion's share of these counterfeits are coming out of China. I can't imagine that that's the only source of counterfeit. Are, are all of the law enforcement agencies and ICTA and the 
Anti-Counterfeiting Education Foundation. Do these organizations have a sense as to where else these counterfeits might be coming from? We can see through what we're learning from the intercepts with Customs and Border Protection that there are other entries, even those that are made in China, sometimes they will reroute them through a second shipper. Uh, like go to Europe and then come here? Correct. And, and you often find that. But the other major source of counterfeits is, is the Middle East. Hmm. Any country or region within the Middle East specifically? They're coming out of the war zones. Uh, it was Iraq, uh, Syria. Now they're seeing some come through there, and they're brought out and usually will go to Europe and then come sometimes rooted through Canada and sometimes through other countries, but eventually trying to make their way to the United States. These are being used then to fund terrorist activities? We don't really know uh, how much of that really gets back to terrorist activities what we have learned in working with the various agencies of law enforcement is there is a high correlation between drug trafficking, human trafficking, and other criminal enterprises. It seems to be the same networks. They're involved in all of these types of things. So you can't necessarily equate it to terrorist activities. I, I think a lot of it is greed and just plain old criminal activity. So I guess that answers sort of the what geopolitical entities are issuing this. It's mostly just criminal gangs, organized crime, that right. sort of thing, as opposed to something like ISIS, which is attempting to be a more geopolitical entity. It could be some tangential relationship to the major terrorist organizations, but from what we've seen, they're, they're much more tied to just plain criminal activity. To return to the question of the flow of these coins into the United States, they're not just coming across, you know, border checkpoints between Mexico or Canada or at ports at anywhere on the coasts. They're also coming in through online retailers. You mentioned Alibaba and a few other major online right. places where these things are being distributed. What responsibility do online platforms, online sales platforms have and what interaction has there been between these online sales platforms and all of the government and sort of private organizations that are trying to stem this flow in the United States? It's an interesting situation because we concentrated first on the Chinese giant Alibaba. But then we saw a major shift recently, actually within the last year. And that happened because Amazon changed its model and allowed sellers from other countries to sell directly into the United States before they had a process that they had to sell to a third party. And it was usually Amazon in the United States, and Amazon did the fulfillment. Today, if you buy online at Amazon, chances are the fulfillment is going to come directly from China. And those things, which tend to be smaller orders, are coming by China Post. And that's uh, e-packets, right? Yes. And then now how does the Universal Postal Union pull out that the Trump administration announced a while back and is putting into place in uh, October? How will that affect this? That's a very interesting question. It could dramatically affect it, we hope, because, for instance, uh, if they some of these coins they can buy for like 2 or $3 dollars, and the postage on it is less than a dollar coming all the way from China. 
So it's very easy to get coins in in small packets. And of course, the Customs Border Protection cannot open every one of those packets, and the post office doesn't open them either. So that's a major source of small packets of counterfeit coins coming in. The other source of counterfeit coins coming in is in shipping. They are coming, they're flowing through our ports. And these are coming in by the tons. And you say, well, how can they afford to ship them? They use the coins as ballast. They're the last thing uh, loaded off the ships, but the counterfeiters don't care. As long as they get here. Yes. So we formed a network of experts throughout the country. Our objective was to put an expert within 24 to 48 hours in airports and seaports. And we do that and we go along with at law enforcement's request, we go and inspect the coins and identify the counterfeits for them. To um, ICTA and the ACEF's efforts in conjunction with federal law enforcement, does that dovetail in any way with the current trade war, trade conflict that we have with China? And has that larger political issue impacted the work of ICTA, ACEF, and the federal law enforcement agencies? Okay, let me clarify for you. ICTA was the initial organization that stepped in to help management. That transferred over to the foundation. We organized the foundation as a 501c3 nonprofit because we exist entirely on donations. So we are now our own entity in the foundation. And that's been more than a year, right? Yes, that happened November 15th of 2018. And the Professional Numismatist Guild has come along and provided some administrative support for us. But ICTA has now refocused its efforts on lobbying. There are a number of issues that they're dealing with. So the foundation is a principal source now doing this work. None of ICTA's lobbying efforts have anything to do with counterfeiting? or does Not at this point. Not at this point. If I can circle around to the question about the, the trade war... I imagine that that would have some bearing on the work that, you know, the ACF under the auspices of PNG would yes, do it. Yes. And actually, uh, last spring, I met with uh, members of the Senate Finance Committee staff who was working with the U.S. Trade Representative's office. And at that point, they did not have counterfeit coins among the items that the U.S. Trade Representative's office and also the ambassador to China were looking at and raised these issues. So we we provided the information and have been alongside them and we're going at it from the violation of trademarks and copyrights. That is how it is in that negotiating process and it's very much a part of what is at issue in the trade negotiations. It's not only the price of goods coming in, it's the violation, the theft of U.S. technology and the violations of our trademarks and our copyrights. From a policy standpoint, you know, headlines today in major publications are dominated by talking about the tariffs and the impact of tariffs on American manufacturing or steel production or whatever the industry may be. What is the numismatic and anti-counterfeiting policy equivalent of that? And has the Trump administration been implementing a policy regime that is effective in that context? There's no specific policy at this point. One of the things that is happening actually in the next few weeks, uh, we're hoping that there will be uh, hearings 
there has been uh, a draft bill proposed that retroactively would protect coin designs. As you probably are well aware, any coin designed by a U.S. Mint employee has been considered public domain. And they're trying to close that loophole, not only with coin products, but other things, other technology that's been developed by through government agencies to protect cultural aspects, the cultural heritage, and also the copyrights. If they can retroactively cover coinage, it would give us a much deeper approach and perhaps formulate some from an additional legislation. But right now, there's nothing specific on the books. So it seems that all of these efforts are unending, and you're sort of playing whack-a-mole. You find you isolate a problem and you take it out, but there's always a, a constant flow behind that one. That has to, um, in some cases, wear on you, but motivate you that this is a fight that is, for right now, unending. It certainly, we're at the beginning stages. This is not a fight that's going to be over in a few months. The flow of counterfeits coming in is detrimental to the hobby. I think we've made some dents. As you said, it it might appear to be whack-a-mole, but some of the principal things that we've been working with I know has made a tremendous difference. But we have work to do. This is not a time to let up. That's why the foundation needs people's support. There's a lot of information at the at our website, and that's uh, www.acefonline.org. Uh, you can contribute there, but there's a lot of information, and we communicate to people things that we're seeing going on. That's a way of staying abreast, as well as news articles and things in Coin World and other other publications. And you now uh, have brought in a new director of anti-counterfeiting. That's somebody that CoinWorld listeners, uh, certainly readers, are familiar with, Doug Davis. You talk about what Doug brings to the table and what his priorities are going to be, especially how he can juggle that and the Numismatic Crime Information Center, which he's already been doing. Well, actually, it's a great fit. Uh, Doug uh, took over as of September 1, and uh, Doug had been a very important member of our task force. So we've actually been working with Doug. There's a great synergy between the Numismatic Crime Information Center, which he founded and has run. His background is in law enforcement. He's a retired police chief. He also has been a coin collector since uh, early age. He understands and knows people within the hobby and the industry. He also works with law enforcement. He actually helped develop a very important person in development of the law enforcement portal. He teaches classes, especially for law enforcement, and is going to be working in that area. So we feel that I stepped aside. I'm going back to research and writing, but... Doug will be able to take this as taking the baton, and I expect him to accomplish bigger and better things. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the efforts to combat the counterfeit flow in, but maybe we would be remiss to not discuss 
the fact that if there wasn't a demand for these here, that these products wouldn't be flowing in. What needs to be done to eliminate that demand? Is there uh, what kind of role is there for a, somebody like a coin roller, the A and A, or other hobby stalwarts to get the word out to people that you know the chances are these are fake. You know, people buy stuff on Wish and then post it in Facebook groups and, hey, I got a great deal and everybody's, no, you didn't. <laughs> you know, what kind of role needs to be filled in that regard? Or, or is somebody filling that role? Actually, every collector can help in this effort. If you're a knowledgeable collector and you're talking to people in your coin club, in your community, the basic premise is there are no Santa Clauses in numismatics. If it's too good to be true, it's probably fake. And so if somebody thinking that they can buy a gold coin that would be worth $1,300, dollars $1, in the marketplace for 10 bucks or less is ludicrous. But the general public is so ingrained on looking for a bargain and making a buck, they don't really get it. So everybody can be an ambassador for the hobby and explain this. The problem is when a person, they say, well, I'm interested in coins, and they think they've bought this great deal, and then when they find out that they have been suckered or defrauded, they say, I don't want to get involved in coins. It's an education process, and everybody has a role to play. And by the way, one thing, that, a very important thing, it is illegal to knowingly possess, buy, or sell counterfeit coins. And that's very, very important because to knowingly buy and possess is a five-year federal offense. To buy and sell, deceptive is not only fraud, but that's a 15-year sentence. And we have cases, there are more than 70 cases that we have assisted with. Some of those are working their way through the courts. And you're going to see stiffer and stiffer penalties for this. So it's not slap on the wrist type thing, but every collector has a responsibility in this in making sure that they explain to people, you need to know what you're buying and you need to understand the value of what's going on. Don't succumb to greed. What legal distinction exists between buying, knowingly buying and selling counterfeits of whether it's a Morgan dollar or a bullion coin or something like that, which is, as you say, illegal and you face very stiff penalties if you're found to be violating that law. But some people buy and sell antique counterfeits. For example, a Henning nickel from, you know, it's a counterfeit nickel minted in the 1940s. That sells and trades based on its premium as an antique counterfeit. Is there a legal distinction there? Do antique counterfeit sellers who are selling pieces that people know to be counterfeit, but they're trading based on their historical value, do they have anything to fear? That's a very interesting issue because as one of the senior agents in Secret Service told me quite vividly, Madam, there is nothing in U.S. law that makes an exception for education or anything about counterfeit. If it's counterfeit, uh -oh. it's counterfeit. <laughs> So there, there are obviously some areas of, of uh, law that probably need some address or clarification. Secret Service makes no distinction. If it's a counterfeit coin, you have an obligation to turn it over to the Secret Service. That is part of the law. If you knowingly possess it, buy it, or sell it, 
You are breaking federal law. Well, there goes my plans to buy a Henning nickel. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it, there are all kinds of uh, nuanced things that are there and have been collected for centuries. And I know that many people, dealers and collectors, say, I keep this for educational purposes. I'm saying to you right now, be very careful because to flaunt this in the face of, of law enforcement at this time when we're asking them to clean up the marketplace, help us get rid of counterfeits. As I say, you read Title 18 dealing with counterfeits. There is nothing, hmm. no qualifier. It's very straightforward. Interesting. It might be worth exploring adding a little more nuance to the current yes. legal regime. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> be ashamed to be trying to make an educational set and then go to jail. <laughs> but so you you mentioned a, a couple of minutes ago in some of your comments about the chilling effect that the proliferation of counterfeits has on non-numismatic people or, you know, inexperienced collectors or people who might be interested in getting into collecting, think they're getting a sweetheart deal and then end up getting ripped off. Is there some way to counter that chilling effect? Is there is there a way to not only demonstrate, because of course this whole conversation is demonstrating that we as a hobby are serious about dealing with this problem, but is there a way to, you know, to uphold and, and to sort of hold up examples of really honest people and to demonstrate that there is a safe and honest way to transact in the numismatic industry? Simply education. Uh, I think uh, if you're in a local coin club or wherever your station in life is, educating people as to genuine coins and their value and that there is recognizing there is a counterfeiting problem and you must be knowledgeable and understand. And, you know, we get the question all the time, how can I protect myself from unknowingly purchasing counterfeits? Know what the genuine coin looks like, how much it weighs, its diameter, know the characteristics of the coin. And if you're uncertain, Seek the advice of knowledgeable people, your professional uh, numismatists, uh, dealers, collectors, advanced collectors. But before you purchase something and pay money, a lot of money, even less, if you don't understand coins, you could be possibly facing a very difficult situation. And I've always used the analogy, uh, would you go and buy a house without researching it? Would you go and buy a car without driving it or researching it or knowing something about it? The same with any collectible. Know what it should be. Know what it should look like, its characteristics. That's a, the safest way to get into coin collecting and investing. And it comes back to educating oneself and taking advantage of the vast amount of good knowledge that's out there. And know your dealer. I Absolutely. Mean, <laughs> and... And yet trust is also being eroded in third-party certification holders because those are now being counterfeited as well. Is that part of the ACEF's education campaign and what research is being done on counterfeit third-party holders? Because some people put a lot of trust in them. Yes, we have worked extensively with the major grading services, uh, NGC and PCGS uh, especially. And when a counterfeit holder is identified, those services are identifying them online you make an extremely important point. People have learned to trust the plastic. Again, you need to know what the holders look like. Both of those services have what they call their museums, and they're available online. 
and you can see every iteration of holders that each of those grading services has produced over the years. You can enlarge them so that you can look at the characteristics, but if you have any question, you can go to their websites and verify the number. Even if the number comes up correct, or you have any doubts, call them, communicate with them. They have experts that do nothing but focus on making sure that people are not getting counterfeit holders. Oh yeah, we've we've seen uh, certificates faked. The numbers they're using yes. they're using real numbers for other coins and, well, and and fake coins have even slipped into real holders. They some yes. of the fakes, you know, not these really cheap lousy yes. ones that show up in Alibaba, but there are fakes that are of such high quality and are so consistent with the original material that they're actually fooling the graders. Which is pretty unbelievable. Yeah, it it has has become a significant problem. I must say that NGC and PCGS spend a good amount of their time and their experts really trying to police this and and work on it. It is a problem for them. I think knowing what they're up against, they're constantly changing and adding new technology to their holders, but. It's a, it's a problem. Well, and it seems like a very delicate dance between sharing this information so people can be armed against buying counterfeits, but giving too much information away so that the counterfeiters know what to to, to stop doing and to and you know you know look look over here. I'll throw the ball here, and they they go the other direction. So uh, that that has to be very tricky. It absolutely is, and that's why people say with us, well, just every time you identify counterfeit, put it online. We can't do that, strictly because we don't want to educate the counterfeiters. However, we're doing seminars and educational presentations and smaller groups where we know who's in the audience. So that has been the most effective thing that we have been able to do. Putting it online is a sure way to educate the very people who are perpetrating these atrocious crimes. One of the things that I uh, distinctly remember learning early on in my time at CoinWorld and collecting in general is that everyone makes mistakes. It's called your tuition in, in the school of numismatics. Uh, and so there, there's always you're always going to have to have some tuition. However, thanks to efforts from Beth and now Doug and and the ACEF and backed by PNG, there's some scholarships out there for you. It looks like so uh, we're going to share links to that in the show notes. We want to thank you for taking your time to discuss this very important, very serious matter for the health of the hobby, the future of the hobby. We look forward to sharing more news as more developments are out there, cases are brought to court, that sort of thing. Thank you. Well, that was our interview with Beth Deicher speaking about the ongoing threat of counterfeiting in the hobby. We believe that the activities of the Anti-Counterfeiting Educational Foundation are bringing some relief to the problem. Because <laughs> we talked about it earlier. Yeah. Absolutely. I have, to, <laughs> I have to play the pun game. But all jokes aside, a serious threat. Please share this uh, more than any other interview, more than any other episode. Share this uh, with folks in the yeah. hobby because people, it's, it's people a very important threat. And, and, and if you have loved ones who own rare coins or are considering investing in bullion or rare coins and they're going onto these websites and they're trying to do it online without contacting a dealer, without going through the traditional channels – just have them listen to this and please take precautions. There are yourself. plenty of places to get good stuff at fair prices. 
Don't be fooled. There's no Santa Claus in numismatics. Nope. That's our reminder. It's we too good hope to be true. It probably is. We hope you uh, subscribe, share it, and until next week, happy, happy collecting. collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coinworld podcast was brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on all orders over $65. This is a limited time offer, so shop amosadvantage.com today.